This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. This is our year in review show, talking, talking about the big things that changed American politics in 2018. Later in this hour, the political revolution in Orange County, formerly the white-hot heart of right-wing politics in California and the nation, the one-time home of the John Birch Society, then the Goldwater Movement. Now Orange County will not have a single Republican in the House of Representatives when the new Congress convenes next week. Gustavo Ariano, the LA Times staff writer, will explain what Orange County was and what it will be. Also later in this hour, any year in review show has to do something about Donald Trump's year, the year in Trumpitude, Trumpism in review. We'll turn to the great investigative reporter David K. Johnston for a look at the new evidence of where Trump got his money. Little hint, it came from his father, Fred Trump. But first, our progressive honor roll for 2018, Trump Watch, starts right now. Well, 2018 was a big year for progressives, and today we have our annual progressive honor roll. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Well, we talked here a lot about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, but I don't know much about the person you selected as our most valuable House member, Ro Khanna. Ro, R-O, Khanna with a K-H. Tell us about him. Uh, Ro Khanna is the congressman from uh, the, you know, it's sometimes referred to as the South Bay, but it's actually more down towards San Jose, Silicon Valley. He is uh, a former aide in the Obama administration, a tech advisor, and he's the kind of guy who you might expect to be, you know, something of a quote-unquote new Democrat, one of these uh, centrist, business-oriented people. Uh, but that's not what he's been at all. He has uh, he arrived in the, in the House two years ago after defeating a Democratic incumbent in a primary, anticipating what we saw in 2018 with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Ayanna Pressley. Upon his arrival in Congress, he signaled that uh, he was going to make foreign policy a big priority. And there really is no one in the House who has been so aggressive in trying to alter U.S. foreign policy, particularly as regards Yemen. He's been in the lead on trying to get the United States to uh, end its support for the Saudi assault on Yemen, which is really grown to genocidal proportions in, in many senses. He has also worked with Bernie Sanders on a host of corporate responsibility issues. He's worked with Barbara Lee on efforts to overturn the authorization of the use of military force that has been used as an excuse for so many military interventions by Democratic and Republican presidents. He has uh, written a uh, essentially a tech bill of rights or a digital bill of rights, uh, which really is quite visionary in how it asserts privacy rights as well as rights to access the technology. One of the great things about the nation's progressive honor roll is that you don't just focus on 
national politics. You go down ballot to highlight state and local folks. My favorite is your pick for most valuable judges. Tell us about that. Well, this is an incredible story out of uh, the Houston, Texas area, uh, Harris County. And uh, in that area, uh, they have a lot of elected judges. This is true all over the United States, by the way. Elected judges are very, very common. And um, uh, in the Houston area this year, a large number of judgeships were up, and many African-American women lawyers filed for judgeships. They, they started their campaigns. Many of them were uphill campaigns. And at a certain point, they realized how many of them had done it. And it turned out that there were 17 women who were essentially newcomers to judicial politics. There were also two other women uh, who were running for higher-level judgeships. We had 17 women who were running, all African-American lawyers, many of them with deep roots in civil rights and social justice efforts in the community. They pulled themselves together into a slate, and they used the term black girl's magic or black girl magic slate. And they urged people to just vote the whole slate, elect all of these women to judgeships in combination with uh, the very strong showing that Beto O'Rourke had in his U.S. Senate race. They were all swept into office. And there are incredible pictures of all of these women uh, in a courtroom. Uh, And it's just transformational. It's transformational not merely because we're seeing a change in uh, the demographics of the court, if you will. It's also transformational because so many of these women are talking about doing judgeships differently. The black girl magic slate of 17 African-American women candidates for judgeships in Texas, and they all won the nation. Progressive Honor Roll also honored the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Maura Healy. Tell us about her. She's remarkable. Uh, Maura Healy was elected four years ago as Attorney General in Massachusetts, and um, she's a former basketball player, but she's not all that tall, and that probably gives you a good uh, uh, signal as regards the kind of person she is. Uh, she doesn't let anything get in her way, and she has been incredibly outspoken, incredibly visionary in her approach. Uh, she's taken on corporations left and right and really holding them to account. Uh, and she has also taken on Donald Trump. Uh, it's arguable that no attorney general in the country has been so consistently aggressive in suing, challenging, organizing opposition to the Trump administration on Every sort of issue you can imagine, uh, from LGBTQ rights to uh, refugee issues to immigration issues to regulation issues. Uh, She's had a lot of successes in the court, and um, she's very outspoken on this. And one of the things that she did in 2018 that was quite striking was that after so many of these school shootings, she really stepped up and, and became perhaps the loudest advocate in the country for the view that strict gun laws work and pushing back against the NRA, uh, showing you know what Massachusetts has done, arguing that Massachusetts should do more. She's somebody who has, I think, tremendous potential in our politics, and it's notable that she was reelected uh, in the start of November with 70% of the vote, doing better than anybody, doing better than uh, Governor Baker, who's a popular Republican, or uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's a popular Democrat. 
And the nation's progressive honor roll focuses not just on political figures. You also have named the most valuable protest, something I didn't know very much about called Love Knows No Borders. Tell us about Love Knows No Borders, the most valuable protest of the year. Well, it, it is an effort by a lot of faith groups uh, from many, many different faith traditions, many different religions, to keep a strong focus on the border. Religious leaders from around the country have come and spent a substantial amount of time in the San Diego area on the border, uh, mounting protests, uh, risking arrests, conducting civil disobedience, doing, taking the steps that are necessary to highlight the immorality of the Trump administration's approach to a host of uh, issues on the border. Now, obviously, this isn't the only protest uh, in that region. We've seen a lot of people step up and really uh, push back against the the awful decisions and choices made by the Trump administration, the separation of families, the demonization of the caravan of folks coming from Central America. But if you look at what uh, the American Friends Service Committee and other religious groups have done with the Love Knows No Borders movement, it's it's actually very inspiring and, and I would argue beautiful. And finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. The nation's progressive honor roll came close to having a category called most valuable Minnesotan. How did that work out? Well, I mean, there's a lot of valuable Minnesotans, uh, you know, and, and obviously you'd be the top, John. But on the on on the chance that 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 you would refuse the honor, uh, there really is a lot of attention on uh, Ilhan Omar, who has come into Congress or will come into Congress in short order. She's a remarkable woman, and she's one of the uh, four women that we highlight as the nation's progressives of uh, 2000, most valuable progressives of 2018. And that's Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, Rashida Tlaib from uh, Michigan, and Ayanna Presley from uh, Massachusetts. Ilhan Omar, coming out of Minneapolis, taking the seat formerly held by Keith Ellison. She is someone who grew up in a refugee camp, but she comes as a very distinctive member of Congress, one of the two two first Muslim women in Congress. Uh, But more than that, somebody who, because of her unique experiences, is going to be able to push back uh, against Donald Trump, I think, in incredibly profound ways. John Nichols with the nation's annual progressive honor roll. Read it at thenation.com where there's lots more about books, movies, media. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's a great pleasure to be with you, my friend. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, politics in Southern California in 2018. Our year in review continues with Gustavo Arellana on the big changes in Orange County. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. (laughs) 
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, where Donald Trump's money comes from, David K. Johnston, the great investigative reporter, will explain. But first, our Year in Review show continues. Perhaps the biggest political change in America took place in California's Orange County, where a kind of revolution took place in November when Democrats ended decades of Republican domination in the white-hot heart of American right-wing politics. Starting next week, when the new Congress convenes in Washington, not a single Republican will represent Orange County in the House of Representatives. It's solid blue. For comment, we turn to Gustavo Ariano. He's a full-time features writer at the LA Times. He's also the former editor of the OC Weekly, where he resigned in protest rather than lay off most of the staff as demanded by the owners. He was probably best known for his syndicated column, Ask a Mexican, read by 2 million people in 38 cities, and then a best-selling book. We reach him today in Orange County. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back. Gracias for having me, John. Well, remind us of the place of Orange County in American political history. We might start with Nixon in 1946 when he was first elected to the to the House of Representatives, or maybe Goldwater in 1964. Orange County was kind of the basis of the movement that made him the Republican candidate. Where would you like to start the history of Orange County in American politics? Well, let's start right at the beginning, 1889, when Orange County secedes from Los Angeles County to create its own county. The state assembly member who pushed for that was Henry W. Head, a man who served under no no less a Confederate than Nathan Bedford Forrest, and because of that, he was an original member of the Ku Klux Klan. And we're not talking about the White Rose Klan. We're talking about the original Klan, which wore black robes. And, and Henry Head, to his dying day, was always very proud of what he did. In fact, in the 1890s, he proposed that Klan uh, come back in style in um, in Orange County, as documented at that time by my new employer, by the Los Angeles Times. So from the beginning, Orange County was baptized in white supremacy, in a really nasty form of white supremacy at that. Nathan Bedford Forrest, first time he's been mentioned on this show in quite a while. <laughs> but, you know, the Ku Klux Klan in Orange County, uh, yeah, it was there at the beginning. Uh, it was Orange County that sent a member of the John Birch Society to the House of Representatives in 1970, John Schmitz. Remind us, who was John Schmitz? John, John Schmitz is interesting because he was really the first politician to become what we now know as the Orange County conservative. So he was a professor at Santa Ana College, a poli-sci, he was a Korean War veteran, and then you start having the Goldwater Revolution happening in 1964. He decides to start getting into politics. Uh, when Jimmy Utt, the original uh, caveman of Orange County politics, once he passed away, John Schmidt, he decided to run for his congressional seat. He was able to win. He said he joined the John Birch Society because he wanted to join the moderate wing of the Republican Party. <laughs> and I, I, and, and oh, that's not even his best quote. I'll, I'll save that one for later. Okay. But he only, he only ran. He only ran. Uh, he only served one term because no less uh, an authority than Richard Nixon uh, turned against him because when Nixon went to China, John Schmidt said, "I don't have a problem with Nixon going to China. I just have a problem with him coming back." Uh-huh. And yeah, and so Nixon actually ran the, the then county, I think he was a treasurer or assessor at the time, 
uh, Andrew Hinshaw ran him against Schmidt. Schmidt's lost. He ended up becoming a state assembly member for a couple of years. But no, my, my favorite John Schmidt's quote was, I'm, I may not be Mexican, but I'm close. I'm Catholic with a mustache. <laughs> I may not be Mexican, but I'm close. I'm Catholic with a mustache. John Smith, John Schmitz, the member of the Birch Society, elected to Congress in Orange County in 1970. Well, coming down to this year, this year... The pundits said before Election Day that a Democrat on the party's left, a progressive Democrat, could not carry the Republican districts of Orange County. Uh, for example, Irvine, because it's very middle class, it's very white and Asian. But a Democrat on the party's left did carry Irvine. Let's talk about Katie Porter defeating Mimi Walters. Katie Porter, a professor at UCI School of Law, uh, firebrand progressive, studied under Elizabeth Warren herself, so she decides to run. And she, she's up against a longtime incumbent, Mimi Walters, who's been in politics in Orange County, geez, going back to the 90s. She was a councilwoman and you know, moved up the ranks, state assembly. I think she was actually state senator. And I, you know, no one thought that Katie had a chance, except, of course, her supporters, because the problem was that Mimi Walters, even though she, yeah, she was a loser Republican, she was not ex- exactly low the way other uh, Republicans were in Orange County, like, say, Dana Rohrbacher or, you know, Lord Dereisa. He was so low that he decided not to run for office. So on election night, Katie Porter was actually behind by thousands of votes. And, and you know, it's interesting because the New Yorker, they, they did a good job of covering what happened in Orange County. And so the race they decided to uh, cover Dana Goodyear, their California correspondent, was Katie Porter. So you could tell that uh, Goodyear thought that uh, Katie was going to win because on election night she was there and the dispatch was like, wait, uh, this was supposed to go in the Democrats' way. And, of course, what ended up happening was not only did Katie win, but all the, dem- all the congressional seats went Democrat. I mean, no, one, no one thought it was going to happen, not even people within the, dem- the Democratic Party, the leadership. They thought at most they would take two or three seats, not all seven. I mean, especially me. I actually promised the Democrats that if they took, if they took all seven seats, that I would re-register from no party stated to Democrat. So guess what? I'm a Democrat. <laughs> well, we are speaking with a registered Democrat, Gustavo Ariano. <laughs> He's also a staff writer for the uh, L.A. Times. And we're talking about the year in politics of which Orange County is the most dramatic and amazing political change. Uh, Katie Porter, just want to highlight here, you mentioned her affiliation with Elizabeth Orwin, or, or Warren. The platform she ran on included Medicare for All, and I believe she also is in favor of uh, abolishing ICE. Um, and uh, this is the district um, that is not a Latino district. Uh, and uh, was considered to be a pretty Republican district because a lot of uh, Asian immigrants there who are supposed to be more conservative uh, than than uh, Latinos and uh, and a lot of middle class white people. Nevertheless, a progressive Democrat won in Irvine, and Katie Porter will be taking her seat in Congress on January third. You mentioned Daryl Issa. Uh, that's another district that was won by a progressive Democrat. This one was named Mike Levin. Uh, let's talk about Daryl Issa for a minute. You mentioned that he was so unpopular, he decided not even to try to get reelected. 
Oh, yeah, this is a guy, I sold car alarms, if memory serves me correct. Yes, the Viper, the Viper car <laughs> alarm. I'm so glad you remembered the Viper. And remember how the Viper worked? No, I, I don't I The don't Viper, the, the way the Viper worked was if you got too close to the, a car that had a Viper car alarm, I think this is like in the 80s, a scary voice said, protected by Viper, stand back. <laughs> and that was the voice of Daryl Issa. That was the first time anybody had heard Daryl Issa's voice. It was the voice of the car alarm. Oh, my Lord. Well, he ended up becoming one of the most, one of the richest members of Congress, someone who just loved to antagonize Democrats. And frankly, good governance with just, uh, geez, with all sorts of quasi-investigations. So ISA nearly lost in 2016 to a former, uh, to a veteran, nearly, nearly lost by only about 1,000 votes. And that was a shocker. This was in 2016, the year of Trump, because his county or his district served South Orange County, the deepest edges of South Orange County from Dana Point onward, up through Pendleton into Oceanside. So we're talking about marine territory. Yeah. And the fact, yeah, and the fact that he barely won in 2016, he knew that his time was up. So 2018, he decided not to run. So instead ran another one of these lifelong Republicans here in Orange County, Diane Harkey. She used to be a state assembly member, very, very anti-immigrant. The last seat she had she held was on the board of equalization. So very, very unpopular person. But that was the best Democrats ha- or Republicans had. On the Democrat side, you had Mike Levin. Mike Levin used to be with the Democratic Party of Orange County, has been working on green energy for a long time. And, and that district is interesting because on one hand, you have a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservative conservatism because of the uh, Marines, but it's also a big surfing area. San Clemente, Dana Point, so you have a lot of environmental nuclear power plant. So you have a lot of people who are concerned about the environment. And Mike Levin, you like perfectly hammered away at Harkey. That was the biggest blow by far. That was actually the one seat that I knew would be, uh, the Democrats would take just because of how unpopular Harkey was and how charismatic Levin is. The surfer vote turned out to be crucial <laughs> uh, because of their concern about the environment. And there was a third progressive Democrat uh, who won a seat in Orange County, Harry Ruda, beat Dana Rohrbacher. Now, Dana Rohrbacher was called Putin's favorite congressman. As I recall, there was Paul Ryan had joked that there were two people in America who were on Putin's payroll, Donald Trump and Dana Rohrbacher. This was at some kind of private Republican gathering. No, it was Kevin McCarthy. Oh, it was Bakersfield. It was Kevin McCarthy. It was not Paul Ryan. Yes, it was yeah, Kevin McCarthy. So, yeah. so fill us in on Dana Rohrbacher and, and why he was Putin's favorite congressman. Oh, my Lord. We're going to start with Dana Rohrbacher. Let's see. Okay. He uh, fought with the Mujahideen, uh, and he bragged about it until they turned into the Taliban, and then all of a sudden Dana uh, just didn't know what he was doing back then. One of his former aides ended up becoming a convicted pedophile. This is a guy who said, well, if there is global warming, which he didn't believe, that it was caused by dinosaur flatulence back in, you know, back in the age of the dinosaurs. This was as bad of a congressman as there was in the United States, yet he won again and again and again. So, and he would win big time. And in 2018, all of a sudden, and it's funny, because, you know, my favorite paper, the OC Weekly, we hammered away at him for years and years and years, and people would never care. All of a sudden, uh, with Russia and Putin, people start realizing, oh, my God, he must be uh, a toady of the Russians. So people started coming up to us and saying, like, oh, do you know 
Congressman Dana Rohrbacher. Uh, yeah, we've been covering him for 20-some years, so <laughs> I really thought Dana was going to win. Harley, I don't know if he's a progressive, or he's a, you know, he's a millionaire who was a Republican turned Democrat and spent his own money, and, you know, and... I don't know. I, 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 the jury's still out on Harley. I, I have problems with self-funded millionaires yeah. becoming Congress people. That said, he did beat Dana Rohrbacher. That he will be lionized the annals of Orange County history as he as he deservedly should be. Meanwhile, Dana Rohrbacher now he's saying that he's going to move all the way to Maine to start a consulting agency. So that shows how much commitment he had to Orange County. Yeah, no, you're right to say Har- Har- Harry. Uh, Ruta is a uh, a self-funding millionaire. He was endorsed by some of the uh, progressive groups because of his uh, platform, and and, uh, that's not true of everybody who ran. So that's why I call him another progressive, endorsed by progressive groups. Let's put it that way. Finally, there's... John says it, and it's right. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Finally, Gil Cisneros won the open seat in Fullerton, would you call Gil Cisneros your typical Orange County Latino? Uh, no, not at all, because most Orange County Latinos don't win the lottery to a tune of $200 million. 266. <laughs> Let me just underline that number. $266 million won in the lottery. Uh, I'm yeah. speechless. I'm speechless. You take over. Yeah, I, I've never even gotten two out of six numbers in the lottery. <laughs> I am. But no, so Gil, another uh, Navy veteran, uh, with his money, signed a nonprofit with his wife, the living Melinda, never ran for office, former Republican, decides to turn Democrat. And this is what I actually think if people, if people want to talk about the future of Orange County, it's his district because it's about equally a third Latino, a third Asian, and a third white. And very, very mixed. Purple, it's as purple as purple can be. That said, I really thought his he was going to lose against his opponent. Young Kim, young Kim, former state assemblywoman, being being touted as the next, as, as the future face of the Republican Party in Orange County. Um, and there's a lot of Asian voters, and the Asian voters historically have voted in bigger numbers and more Republican than Latinos. So, and, you know, again, on election night, uh, young Kim held a comfortable lead over Gil Cisneros. Gil Cisneros uh, I don't think he conceded, but he basically, if you were there or if people were there, they saw that he didn't think he was going to win, and that's another one that got pulled out. So, and and this one again, it was hard for me to think that Joe would win, but kudos for him for winning. And again, it remains to be seen how he'll be governing, and more importantly, I'm sure this is one of your questions: the Republican Party is. I, I, you know, the Republican Party in Orange County, California, has been dead forever. That said, they still have a lot of money, and especially in Orange County, this was the titular um, uh, uh, beak front for uh, conservatism in the United States for decades, and now it's gone. You know, in 2020, they're going to spend so much money that everything possible to try to gain those seats back. Uh, let's talk about Asian American voters in Orange County for a minute. I think the be- most important fact is Asian Americans are not all alike. For surprise, inst- surprise. <laughs> and one of the most important developments for the future of Asian American difference in Orange County is that uh, Trump has said he wants to deport Vietnamese refugees who have lived in Orange County for decades. There are <clears throat> there are 7,000 Vietnamese refugees living in Orange County who have been identified as non-citizens who have been convicted of some kind of crime in the decades since they arrived in the mid-70s. 
Uh, do you think these deportations might change the political allegiance of the Vietnamese communities in Little Saigon and Fountain Valley and around there? It's definitely affecting the younger voters. The younger voters who are already skewing Democrats to begin with, something like this, they see it as a direct attack on their community. That said, the, you know, the, the hardcore voters, the people who have been putting in all these uh, Vietnamese, these like, retrograde Vietnamese Republicans into office, they're never going to go Democrat. They're very much like the Cuban Americans down in Florida. Those, those communities are almost, almost exactly alike, and so they're going to stick with Trump come hell or high water just because they've been taught for, by the Republicans to hate anything that's Democrat, especially anything that's liberal. All that said, it's interesting because at least with the conservatives in the Vietnamese community historically, they all they always try to divide Latinos and uh, Vietnamese by saying, oh, you see, Latinos, they come into this country illegally. They're the ones who are deported. We came here righteously as refugees, so that's why the government is going after Latinos. But now you have the government going after refugees. I mean, these undocumented Vietnamese they came here as refugees. And remember, it's far harder to come into this country without papers from Vietnam than it is from Mexico or anywhere else in Central America. So, hey, you know, for those Vietnamese who supported Trump and now their countrymen are going to be probably deported, you're going to get what you deserve. Gustavo Ariano is now a staff writer for the L.A. Times. Gustavo, thanks so much for talking with us on KPFK. Gracias, John. I'm John Wiener. Live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next year, our Year in Review show continues, and we turn, as we must, to the President of the United States. One of the highlights of the year was a lot more research and investigation digging into the story of where Donald Trump got his money. We have a report in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. It's time to talk about Donald Trump's money and where it came from. That's the subject of a massive expose published by the New York Times. For comment, we turn to David K. Johnston. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who wrote for the New York Times and the L.A. Times. He's the author of seven books, including The Making of Donald Trump and, most recently, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. We talked about it here a few months ago. He's editor of DCReport.org, and he knows more about Trump's finances than practically anyone alive. David K. Johnston, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me, John. Well, that special Sunday section of the New York Times had 11 pages of text and documentation on what they called suspect tax schemes that helped preserve what they called a vast inherited fortune that Trump inherited from his father, Fred. What do you consider their most important findings? Well, the New York Times, in the most extraordinary thing, I mean, I, I can't imagine uh, how what it would have taken if I had wanted to write these words when I was there and get them past all the editors, uh, said that the sitting president of the United States engaged in, quote, outright fraud, mm -hmm. end quote. 
it is beyond question now from the documents, the 100,000-plus pages of mostly private family Trump documents backed up by various public records that they got, and the interviews and the other work they've done, that two things can be said. Donald Trump in particular and the Trump family as a whole are criminal tax cheats. They'll, they won't ever be indicted for the crimes the Times described because the statute of limitations for criminal prosecution is only six years, and the Times covers a half century, basically, from the 50s to the turn of the century. And, and the, by the way, the, the, they can be gone after for civil fraud for every single dollar, and Donald has already had two civil tax fraud trials, and he lost both of them. Secondly, Donald Trump's claim that he is a self-made man and his claim that he's worth $10 billion are complete and utter nonsense, and they've been demolished now by the Times. And that second story, however, isn't getting through. Forbes magazine just came out saying Donald Trump's wealth has fallen from $4 billion to $3 billion. And every day on TV and on the radio, I hear uh, people in news saying the billionaire president or the multi-billionaire president. There is not now, there never has been, John, a scintilla of verifiable evidence that Trump has a billion-dollar net worth. And during the campaign, when he told us all he was worth more than $10 billion, and I kept saying that's nonsense, you know, it's not true, once he became president, he had to file his financial disclosure form. As I report in the uh, – it's even worse than you think – they asked to be able to file the statement without signing it under penalty of perjury. Mm. And the Office of Government Ethics said, no, you have to sign that statement. Everybody has to sign under penalty of perjury. So the statement shows a net worth not of $10 billion, but of $1.4 billion. What, what more do you need to know that Trump just makes this stuff up? And even the $1.4 billion – is not to be believed. For example, he says his two Scottish golf courses are each worth more than $50 million, but we just got their new financial reports. Yet again, for another year, they've lost millions of dollars. They're not worth $50 million. They may be literally worth less, except for real estate if you get permission to redevelop them. Uh, his businesses are losing business all over the place, and the rules for the presidential disclosure do not require Trump to disclose all sorts of loans that he is obligated for. If we had a real net worth statement on Donald Trump, it would probably show he's worth a few hundred million dollars. That's all. Most of the New York Times report was about various strategies by which Trump's father, Fred, transferred assets and cash to his children the Times said that Trump himself received at least $413 million in today's dollars from right. his father's real estate empire. How do rich fathers uh, do that? How did Fred Trump manage to transfer $413 million to his son Donald? Well, you do it by lying and cheating and being very calculated. Uh, let me give you a real simple example. If you live in a state like California or New York and you give your child a car, and you put down for sales tax purposes that it's worth, say, $1,000, but it's really worth 20000 they will catch you and they will send you a bill because all of those records are digitized. They're electronic, and they have been for years and years and years. But if it's real estate, those records are not digitized. They're held by individual county governments not by, and sometimes townships and cities, depending on where you live in the country. So what you do is you play with the values of the property. 
at one in one one of the the transfers of Fred Trump real estate to his children, he gave them more than a thousand apartments. They valued it at an unbelievable discount. Say you want to give your child a house worth five hundred thousand dollars. Well, what's the value of that house? It's not like a stock where at the end of the day you know what it's selling for. So maybe it's worth five hundred and fifty thousand, maybe it's worth four hundred and fifty thousand, but it's in a range around a half a million dollars. The Trumps would have valued that house at thirty thousand dollars, six cents on the dollar. Mm. And they got away with it because the IRS doesn't have those records, doesn't pursue them. I have an affidavit uh, filed in a federal court case in Sacramento years ago in which the IRS said that when it comes to gifts of real estate by wealthy people to their heirs, heirs, their descendants, the lowest rate of cheating in America is in Ohio, where 85% of the gifts are undervalued. And in many states, the cheating rate is 100%. Everybody cheats. So guess what? No big surprise. Donald Trump and Fred Trump and Robert Trump and Judge Federal Judge Marianne Barry Trump, they didn't get caught. Well, they stole from us about a half a billion dollars. All of the super rich use these uh, tricky tax avoidance strategies. There's a whole industry of financial advisors yep. and lobbyists who, who work on this undervaluing assets that are transferred to children. Is what Trump did really any different from other very rich people? It's very different. You know, I spent the 13 years I was at the New York Times as their tax reporter and exposing so many tax shelters that I was called the, the de facto chief tax enforcement officer of the U.S. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between aggressive, creative devices to avoid taxes and what the Trumps did, which was flat-out fraud. They used invoicing schemes where they artificially inflated the prices of things to transfer money to the children and, by the way, to also rip off poor people renting rent-stabilized or rent-controlled apartments from the Trumps by justifying higher rents or the government if it was paying the rent on the behalf of these poor people. Back to my example of a half-million-dollar house. If you say the house is worth 450000 you know that's not criminal by any stretch. But when you say it's worth $30,000, six cents on the dollar, that's criminal. They knew it was criminal. It's uh, why they hid this stuff. And it's why we absolutely must see Donald Trump's tax returns in this century. Every single one of them, not just the two pages that I got for his 2005 return, which, by the way, showed his use of a, uh, an illegal tax shelter so odious that when the Republicans in Congress found out about it, it took them weeks, just weeks, to pass a law to shut it down. But you know what Congress does all the time when they catch one of these tax shelters, like when I was exposing them? What do they, they do? They shut them down, but if you were already in, they let you keep your ill-got money. <laughs> so it's as if we had a law that said, well, we're going to declare bank robbery a crime tomorrow, but if you robbed a bank yesterday, well, it's okay. You can keep the money. The New York Times also got Trump's 1995 tax records where he claimed a loss of 916 million dollars losses can be carried forward as deductions uh right. the new york times says deducting that meant he could have avoided all federal income taxes for the next 18 years is that right and and do you think that the 916 million dollar loss is legit well uh, the 18 years is, is sort of their calculation uh, the, the better way to put it is he could have avoided all income taxes on the next $916 million of income. Yeah. 
And no, it was totally illegit. It's the very tax shelter that was shut down in which I showed how he, uh, by the year 2005, had used up all but $815 million of that tax deduction. So he had about $101 million left by the year 2006. But here's the outrageous part of this. Donald Trump told me in 1991 day, you know, he was worth $3 billion. And I looked at him and said, Donald, I don't believe you. And he's like, what? And, and I said, Donald, you can't pay your bills. There are all these, these vendors and merchants and everyone who aren't being paid. I mean, it, it, I can pay any bill that gets presented to me, even though I'm just a newspaper reporter, certainly within a, a few days. I'm going to have to borrow the money, but I can pay the bill. You should be able to sell a piece of property or have cash on hand. If you're really a billionaire, paying your bills should not ever be an issue. And he just told me I didn't know what I was talking about. By the way, later that same day, he told another reporter he was worth not $3 billion, but $5 billion. <laughs> well, the, the, what he did then was he couldn't pay back his bankers. The state of New Jersey Casino Control Commission took Donald's side against the bankers to force them to give up almost a billion dollars that he owed them. And what the casino authorities did is they said, well, if you want to foreclose on Mr. Trump, you will own lovely hotels uh, on the Atlantic City boardwalk and marina, but you won't have a casino license. Now, that's not how the law is supposed to work, by the way, at all. But they ignored the law and they took his side because, after all, he employs thousands of people in New Jersey and the banks, with two minor exceptions, were all from outside of New Jersey. So if you're a New Jersey politician, what do you care about bankers in, 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 uh, in Berlin and Chicago? Yeah. Well, Donald then took the losses the banks had deducted on their tax returns and took them for himself. Mm. He double deducted it. When the New York Times report was published, Donald Trump released a brief statement saying all of this was old news. Isn't that true in part? Isn't Trump referring to your investigations and your reporting on his money? No. and I mean, I'll tell you, yes, in the sense that I certainly for years and Tim O'Brien and Gwenda Blair and the late Wayne Barrett have all done little pieces of this. This, this project is light years beyond where we went. It is new. And it, let, me, let me be very clear. I've been at this for 52 years. I'm the former president of the Investigative Reporters and Editors Association. This is the most masterful investigative reporting I have ever seen. This is just runs miles beyond where we were. And there's not a single technical glitch. Every time I read a story about accounting, business practice, tax law, I almost always wince at some page that the reporter got it wrong. 14,000 words. There's not a single comma that I quarreled with reading that, and I haven't seen anybody else point to it. And you'll notice the White House hasn't denied the story. All they've said is, oh, it's old news. Donald said the other day, it's all public records. Of course it's not. It's mostly private records. I didn't have those private records. I, I would have you know, happily written the story a long time ago. The Times had the money, the resources, and in David Barstow and Susan Craig and Russ Butner, the reporters with the diligence over 18 months to get people to give them documents. And I have nothing but praise for them. This is the single greatest investigative news report anyone has ever written, and I'm in a particularly unique position to be able to judge it. One last question. Is this pretty much now the whole story? Do we know what we need to know about Trump's finances and where they came from? Or 
What's next in this story? Well, assuming that the the Democrats actually turn out to vote and we get a new Congress, and I don't think that's at all certain. I mean, I think there are plenty of people in this country who would rather stay home and watch TV or play golf uh, than go vote, uh, in which case, you know, we are headed to becoming a tyranny as the cover story of the New York Review of Books for October 25th that just came out uh, shows. Um, but assuming that the, the Democrats take control of the House, the Senate, or both, there will immediately be investigations into Trump's finances. Congress has the right to his tax returns. They will demand those returns. They will, they will conduct investigations. And, John, my guess is if you and I are talking a year from now, we're going to be discussing what's in Trump's more recent tax returns, not, uh, you know, what do we need to know, uh, 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 how do we get them. Um, the Democrats will absolutely go after this. And just keep this in mind. In the 1970s, we had two crooks at the head of our government. Spiro Agnew resigned as vice president of the United States and pled guilty to a tax charge over what were basically bags of groceries that he didn't report as bribes and as income. (laughs) Bags of groceries. I mean, there was more to it, but that's what he pled to. Richard Nixon, who famously said, I am not a crook, was an unindicted co-conspirator, and his tax lawyer served time in prison for backdating documents so that Nixon could take a deduction for donating his papers. Those are pebbles compared to the mountain of tax cheating by the Trumps. We have a criminal in the White House. People need to vote. They need to make sure the votes are honestly counted and they need to support a thorough, professional, detailed congressional investigation. And if it warrants it, Donald Trump needs to not only be removed from office, he needs to be indicted, prosecuted, and if convicted, sent to prison. David K. Johnston, his new book is It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. You can read him at dcreport.org. David, thanks so much for doing this. You are the best. Thank you. We spoke with David K. Johnson about where Trump's money comes from on this show in October. Clearly, that segment was taped before the election. I love his line, Nixon's crimes are pebbles compared to the mountain of tax cheating by Donald Trump. Well, now it's time again for your Minnesota moment. Of course, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders For our year-in-review show, we need to talk about the year in Minnesota politics. And, of course, the big news is the election of Ilhan Omar as one of the first two Muslim women to be elected to the House in U.S. history from the district in Minneapolis. Uh, She is joining the Progressive Caucus. The Progressive Caucus has 95 members in the new uh, House when it convenes on January 3rd, and she's been elected to a leadership position in the Progressive uh, Caucus. Uh, Ilhan Omar has talked about what her priorities will be when she arrives in Congress on Thursday, January 3rd. Uh, First, an infrastructure package funding roads, bridges, and broadband internet sponsored by the government instead of by private uh, intel companies. Uh, Second, her second priority is a measure that would establish publicly funded campaigns and automatic voter registration. 
And third, she's advocating a proposed constitutional amendment to undo the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling. Of course, that's the one that allows corporations and labor unions the right to spend unlimited money in political campaigns. Ilhan Omar, of course, is one of uh, three new Democratic Congress members of Congress elected from Minnesota. The other two, <clears throat> Dean Phillips and Angie Craig, are not going to be part of the Progressive Caucus. They are joining the new. They are members of the New Democrat Coalition, which is kind of the. Uh, some call it more moderate. We would call it pro-business, uh, kind of Clinton heirs uh, in the Democratic Party today. Both uh, Dean, Dean Phillips, famously known as the grandson of Dear Abby, uh, was elected from the district west of Minneapolis. It's a suburban Republican upper middle class district. Angie Craig was elected in the district south of Minneapolis and St. Paul, again, a conservative suburban Republican district. So in Minnesota, the Democrat strategy was to put sort of business-oriented Democrats on the ticket in the Republican suburban districts, and both of those people won, Dean Phillips and Angie Craig. Angie Craig had narrowly been defeated two years ago by a horrible uh, right-wing uh, talk radio host who couldn't uh, hold on once Trump wasn't at the head of the ticket anymore. And Dean Phillips had never run for uh, anything before. Uh, but that is the Minnesota congressional delegation. I want to say one more word about political ads in our year in review of Minnesota. If you started watching every political ad aired in Minnesota uh, during the election campaign— it would take you, if you started on New Year's Day, it would take you around Labor Day until you had seen all of them. That's the ads for Minnesota's eight congressional districts, two U.S. Senate seats, and the statewide races, governor, attorney general, and secretary of state, does not include local state officials. In 2018, Minnesota saw $120 million spent on 671,000 political ads on TV, cable, and radio. A record. This has been your Minnesota Moment, the year in review, a special feature of the Trump Watch podcast and Trump Watch on KPFK. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, John Nichols and Gustavo Ariano. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Renee Reynolds, and to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned for Jerry Quickly. This is happening next on KPFK. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>